0: has compiled a list of the most dangerous uh, splinter organizations from worldwide. I don't know for sure who the author is, they didn't brag about their name, Uh, but uh, at any rate it's out on the internet uh, of the ones that this individual who had given up Armstrong-ite or Armstrong-ism had come up with the list. And... uh, We were ranked number six most dangerous organization that came out of worldwide. I find that remarkable in a way that we could make such a list, uh, small as we are and uh, inconsequential in so many respects, but somebody sees a real danger in us, I guess, to rate us that high on their danger list. It says we're out here in our bunkers, all bunkered up, so... uh, I don't know. I don't consider a mobile home a bunker, really. That's about as dangerous a thing as you can live in, whether it be fire or or war (laughs) or whatever. But uh, people get their impressions, I guess, in a way, since we did leave the cities and the middle of Babylon and come out here that that's considered bunkering or bugging out or whatever prepper's term you want to use. (coughs) But we're certainly no danger to anyone from a militia standpoint or a warfare standpoint or a rebellion against government standpoint. Uh, We're here to live in peace and to find peace even among ourselves uh, is one of our biggest goals. So, if anybody thinks we're a danger, it must be some of the doctrines that we're teaching which are quite biblical. So, I... I don't think there's any doubt the changes we have made are in conjunction with Scripture because it's been easy to prove that those things are true. Anyway, just as a passing thought, I want you to realize you're on the danger list (laughs) of some people anyway. Last week we went into the topic of finding the peace and the righteousness of God (coughs) and I showed there that God's purpose and His plan is to bring peace in the universe, a universe that has known war ever since Satan's rebellion and ever since Satan's influence on Adam and Eve. And we have had a tale of woe ever since. God almost destroyed mankind in the days of Noah because of violence and lack of peace and Then the earth was replenished, and as it replenished, peace went away and war began. So, that's where we've been. And then I went through some scriptures to show that God's Word leads to peace. If that's God's purpose, that's His plan, and it is, then His words in the Bible were put there to fulfill that ultimate plan. And as I think I stated... Uh, that is probably the biggest plan and purpose of god is to restore peace to not only the universe but to the world to the church and in our own individual minds that they be at peace so it's peace from the largest perspective you want to take down to the individual that is so very very important to god in fact I recalled this morning, and put it at the top of my list of scriptures, Psalm 133.1, which happened to be Loma Armstrong's favorite scripture in all the Bible. It reads, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I wonder how that scripture came to be her favorite of all the scriptures in the Bible. When she and her husband, Herbert Armstrong, began the end time work up in Oregon, there was a great deal of splintering, of division, of people coming to his evangelistic efforts and then lapsing into uh, enemies, into problems, into difficulties, to warfare between brethren, to warfare toward the ministry. Uh, they went through a very, very terrible time in those early years in Oregon. Because even though God had sent him to establish an end-time work and an end-time church, which we now understand as being the former temple, it had its growing pains. And when they went through all that adversity and enemies against her husband, and in that sense against her as well, because she had to deal with what he dealt with. This somehow came to be her favorite scripture. As we saw last week, Paul was continually dealing in the pastoral epistles with difficulties and problems in the church. We mentioned the one about Eodius and whoever was the other one he called by name and told the people there in Philippi to, I think it was Philippi or was that Colossae? Philippi, I think, to beseech those individuals because of attitudes and difficulties that they were causing within the church. I pointed out in Bible study, and I think it's worth mentioning here, that Paul did not say to listen to them vent. He didn't say listen to them spout their negative attitudes toward each other or anyone else. He said, beseech them. And beseech means work on getting them to change those attitudes, whatever they may have been. But they were dangerous and were disturbing the peace within the church there. So he gave us some very important insight by saying If there are those who have attitudes and they're venting and spouting off about it, beseech them to change it is the implication that is given. Don't listen to it. Tell them, change it. And I think I mentioned there, if not here, that even the world now, in their study of psychology and so on, used to say, you need to get it off your chest. You need to vent. You need to blow it off. Let it go. Now they are realizing that that does not work. They have come to understand that when we vent and we blow off our negative attitudes, that all it does is cause them to settle in deeper. It reaffirms them in our subconscious and our conscious mind and makes them even worse than they were before. The more we talk about... The more we vent, the worse it gets. So venting, they have discovered, is not the correct way to get over and through negativity. It doesn't work that way. Mrs. Armstrong saw an awful lot of enmity and negativity and came to love this particular verse. It is not only a verse that describes a good situation within the church. It also is a prophecy. Let's read the next two verses. How pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. So the heavenly anointing oil uh, is likened To brethren living together in unity. Says, as the dew of Hermon uh, that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Eternal commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So the context of Psalm one hundred thirty three is that that kind of peace will occur in the environs of Zion, where we live today. This area is where peace is going to be brought. Incidentally, that's the one I've quoted many times, showing that Hermon and its dew descends on the mountains of Zion. It's not 80 or 90 miles away as it is in the Middle East. If you'll notice in your King James, the and as the dew is in italics in verse 3, because... Probably the translators here saw that what is called Mount Hermon in the Middle East was 80 or 90 miles from Jerusalem and what they call Zion, and they wondered how in the world dew could descend from Hermon onto Zion. So they added those words. It's the same kind of dew, but not the dew of Hermon, which is what the scripture actually states. So I believe that Cedar Mountain is Mount Hermon, and the dew from it does descend right down to Zion, just below it. So, I want to tie that then with Haggai 2. I'm going to turn back to that one. We've quoted it many times. But here in Haggai, the setting is that God is going to send two leaders and that he is going to stir a remnant of his people in the end time here to come and reestablish the church of God, the temple of God, in what is called the latter temple. Herbert Armstrong was the former temple, and that has been torn down. And now a latter temple must be built by those whom Haggai, as well as Zechariah 1 through 4, 1 through 6, really show to be the two witnesses combined with Revelation 11, uh, where they are called the sons of oil, as in Zechariah 4. So it is within the context of prophecy, and prophecy near to us here soon, that God says in the latter temple He is going to bring peace, as established in verse 9. The glory of this latter house, or latter temple shall be greater than of the former, says the Eternal of Hosts. And in this place will I give peace, says the Eternal of Hosts. So God in the environs of Zion is going to bring, cause, peace to occur. It is going to break out in our time. Okay? That's very prophetic. Now moving on a little bit. We're going to see that after Loma Armstrong died, uh, things began to deteriorate fairly rapidly in Worldwide Church of God. She was Herbert Armstrong's eyes and ears, and she read people pretty well. But he admitted that he had very great difficulties reading people and selecting proper personnel for specific jobs. It was a weakness he had, uh, and yet with her at his side, she counseled him and guided him and helped him, gave him insights into people's character, and he had done a much, much better job up until her death. After her death, uh, things started the other direction fairly quickly. Now, God had called him, I do believe he was an apostle built that built the former temple. But there's a phrase in the Bible about the vine and the fig tree, and I looked up all the instances that it is mentioned uh, in Scripture, that I want to look at some of those today, or actually all of them, because uh, they have a great deal of bearing on what we've been discussing so far. The first one is in First Kings 4. First Kings 4. Now this, in verse 25, was was during the reign of Solomon, and God did, after David's uh, decades of war and fighting, give peace during that time. It says in verse 25, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. So from the south, or from the north, from Dan clear down to Beersheba, in the south, there was peace throughout the land. Everyone dwelt in safety. Now, the worst form of lack of peace is physical war, which is what David dealt with a great deal. Uh, personal, individual, mental, and emotional peace is another matter.
1: A bit different.
0: Uh, today, the church, in this end time, has never suffered with outright physical war. We have dealt with emotional, spiritual, and uh, mental war, dealing with principalities and powers uh, such as Satan and his demons, as well as the culture and ourselves. So it's a a different type of warfare, and yet it's still very, very difficult to deal with, isn't it? Uh, It's hard to fight all the time and to feel weary and to feel frustrated when there was lack of peace. So during that period of time, dwelling under the vine and the fig tree was an indication of peace. It is a term that describes peace, where men are not off fighting in a war, but they're at home with their wife and their children like olive plants around their table, and they can take care of their vine and their fig tree, their farm, their animals is the implication that there is enough peace that they can stay home and dwell safely. So, thinking of dwelling under your own vine and fig tree needs to be understood in that context. That helps define what the term means. It doesn't just mean prosperity, but safety and peace. Let's go to the next instance. Which is in 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18. And verse. I'll begin in verse 27. But Rabshakeh said unto them, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words? Has he not sent me to the men which sit upon the wall that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Now, here's a situation during the reign of Hezekiah where the Assyrian came to Israel and was trying to send forth his own message to the people of Israel. And continuing in verse 28 then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice voice in the Jews' language and spoke saying. So he wanted the populace to hear this. I want the people to hear my message from the king of Assyria. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. All you Israelites, you've been dwelling under Hezekiah during this time. Thus says the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Eternal, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. And then he goes on to describe how he would like for the Israelites to make an agreement with Assyria. And verse 31, well, let's continue. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present... And come out to me, and then eat ye every man of his own vine, and every one of his own fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his sister. So, the message of the king of Assyria is, if you'll give up Hezekiah and the Lord, and come with me, I will make you to live in peace and in safety, and you'll have your own vine and fig tree, and your own well of water, or cistern. So the Assyrian is making wonderful promises here to Israel. Now this same uh, passage is repeated in Isaiah 36, and I want to go back there because you might say Second Kings is not prophetic. It actually is. The whole Bible is. But uh, Isaiah 36 repeats this story. And Isaiah is indeed, undoubtedly, an end-time prophecy, and I don't think anyone would argue that. Maybe someone somewhere would, but it would be hard to do if you understand the Bible at all. But here in Isaiah 36, we have Hezekiah. This was the 14th year of King Hezekiah. that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. So, he actually took the cities. He conquered them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh, same story, from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a great army, and stood and gave the same message. Verse 4, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein you trust? I've already conquered the cities of Judah, Now I'm coming against Israel, and based on what has just happened, why do you have confidence in Hezekiah or in the Lord? I say, say you, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom do you trust that you rebel against me? And then he talks about how he's going to destroy the altars and Hezekiah be taken away and all those things. And in verse 8 he says, Now therefore give pledge, I pray you, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you two thousand horses if you be able on your part to set riders upon them. And goes on bragging and bragging. Uh, Verse 11, Speak, I pray you, to your servants in the Syrian language, for we understood it, we understand it, and speak not to us in the Jews' language in the ears of the people that are on the wall. Uh, Verse 13, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the eternal saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. And then he says, hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make an agreement and eat every one of his vine and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his own cistern. Word for word as it was in Second Kings. Verse 18, Beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? And Many named some. He had a, <laughs> a war chest full that he could say, Well, so and so fell, so and so and so and so. Who do you think you are that you can stand against the Assyrian? Now, I have come to believe over the last 19 plus years that these scriptures have a fulfillment first in the church and secondarily in the nation. So that what has occurred to the church is then going to befall the nation. You're very familiar with that through the Minor Prophet series. Now, I do believe that Herbert Armstrong uh, was a type of the end time, of, the, of Hezekiah, translated to the end time, because there is someone who stood up within the church and made the same challenge essentially that Rabshakeh made from the king of Assyria. Also, in chapter 39, toward the end of Of uh, Well, at the end of Hezekiah's life, recall too that Hezekiah had the the hands of the sundial turned back and God gave him 15 more years to live after he was slated to die. Herbert Armstrong had a heart attack and lived approximately 15 years after the heart attack to finish what he had been given to do. So the parallels are very close there. And here at the end of chapter 39, Isaiah gave more words to Hezekiah. Verse 6, Behold, the days come, that all that is in your house, and that, is that which your fathers have laid up in store till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Eternal. So, Rabshakeh was giving an ultimatum. And at the time of Hezekiah's death, that ultimatum was about to be fulfilled, and the people were going to go into captivity in Assyria, and nothing that they had built or had in store would be left. And of your sons that shall issue from you, which you shall beget, Herbert Armstrong always called us his sons in Christ, I don't think he was taking the place as a father or a pope in a spiritual sense, but Paul spoke in the same vein and called them his children or his sons in Christ because they had come into the truth through him. From God, obviously, but through him. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon, which we know happened to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and others. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Eternal which you have spoken. He said, Moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. Now, Herbert Armstrong oversaw the church, and even though there was some difficulty, some ministers defecting and some people, essentially worldwide hung together until his death. Now, he had showed the various kings and rulers of the earth, everything that he had, as Hezekiah did to the king of Assyria. And the church, shortly after his death, began to fall apart, and two unclean birds took them back in and set their base up in Babylon, as Zechariah 5 says, and their mouth was filled with lead and hushed, shut up. That describes what happened to Worldwide Church of God. And that's the chapter right after he talks about the two witnesses coming on to rebuild the latter temple. So that has occurred. Worldwide Church is not the Church of God anymore. In fact, it's an evangelistic Christian organization that morphed into that after his death. Now Herbert Armstrong didn't really fully grasp who the enemies were. Uh, it was speculated, of course, through worldwide in those decades that the Assyrian was Germany, and he began to suspect that Franz Joseph Strauss, who was the governor or the prime minister of Bavaria at that time, would be the end time beast. And he even mentioned one time, I don't remember when, words to the effect, don't do, he told Franz Joseph Strauss this, don't do what you have in mind to do. He gave him a very mild warning because he thought he was that man. But, the real real Assyrian turned out to be a member of the church, allegedly at least, and had come up through the ranks, and he turned out to be Joseph de Koch, Jr., the real Assyrian in the church. That thing that I mentioned to Herbert Armstrong in 1981 came to pass that a man within the church would stand in the temple of God saying that he was the one to follow, putting himself in the place of God. And Joseph de Koch put himself in the place of God by changing, script, by changing doctrine from those things which the Bible taught right back into Protestant evangelical teaching and belief and practice. So he essentially destroyed the church and took it back into Babylon. He and his son Joseph Takach Jr. I mentioned once before, when we were a few months ago, when we were going through establishing who the end-time Assyrian is, that the Takach surname uh, is Carpatho-Russian or Ukrainian. And that even though his parents were living in Czechoslovakia when they moved here, they had a Russian name, and Joseph Takach grew up in a Russian neighborhood in Chicago, and he grew up as a Russian Orthodox by religion. And he is the Assyrian who came in and destroyed Worldwide Church of God, and took members who stayed with him back into Babylon and set the church up on its pedestal or its base in the world, world, back in Protestant evangelism. So we see that destruction came. That's what was predicted there in Isaiah 39. And didn't the church... And those sons who went there become eunuchs in Babylon. They are unable to reproduce. They are unable to do anything. They fell apart. They wound up selling all the treasures in the buildings, gave up the treasured spiritual doctrines, and lost everything the worldwide church of God ever had in terms of treasures, spiritual, physical, any kind. And went to nothing. In a few years, it went from 200 million income down to 50 million. And then they began selling. And then everything was gone. Nothing left. Just as this says. Now, on the world scene, we are seeing arise a new world order that will be led by a beast and false prophet, as clearly shown in Daniel and Revelation. And they will promise peace. They will promise security. Just as Joseph Saccotch promised that will be upward and onward, and he would follow in the footsteps of Herbert Armstrong. And as soon as Herbert Armstrong died, he immediately stepped out of those footsteps and went a totally different direction, backwards. So now we have a new world order, a new world religion and a new world government that is developing so very very rapidly before our eyes and it will promise mankind peace and prosperity and be able to sit under their own vine and fig tree and it is going to be led by the Assyrian which I believe now can be defined as Russia and her allies, the Chinese uh, Brazil, uh, India, South Africa, and those who are joining right now uh, that uh, alliance. NATO is done. It will come apart. The United States is going under. We are that great whore of Ezekiel 16 and Revelation 18, which the beast and the prophet, false prophet will kill. America has to go in order for Satan to establish the New World Order. He has to get rid of Israel. You know, that's always been the problem with Satan. As God had worked through Israel, and God has done that in the end time. He set up the end time work in Ephraim in the land of Israel, this land. It was destroyed here by a spiritual Assyrian at least, and physical Assyrian at that. A Russian. And now the same thing is about to happen with our nation. So, don't listen to the Assyrian. Don't listen to the New World Order. The whole world is going to worship the beast and the false prophet. The false prophet will cause people and religion to worship the beast. And who can make war with the beast? Well, that is coming. And it's starting Well, it's already really started. It just hasn't come to full fruition yet. But it's at the door and through the door. So these things have accomplished or been done in the church, and now they are well on their way to being accomplished in the world and in our nation. So I think it confirms beyond any shadow of doubt that the understanding, or uh, translation of the minor prophets and the rest of the prophets for that matter, do apply first to the church, then to the world, then to the nations of Israel. That is a correct premise, and we have seen it carried out completely now in the church, and we're seeing it well on its way toward completion in the world, and this nation going under to the physical Assyria not just the spiritual. And even though they will promise us, if we take this chip, we will live in peace and safety forevermore in the new world millennium. That will be laid before us very shortly now. Do you believe it? Will they be able to persuade you not to follow the Lord, but to follow the king of Assyria? Now, Joseph Coach was able to convince an awful lot of the church to follow the king of Assyria, was he not? And very, very quickly, very quickly. Didn't take long. So we're facing, as a nation, the same situation today. Now, God gave Israel peace in the days of Solomon, their own vine and fig tree. The Assyrian promised it, and it was rewritten in a prophecy in Isaiah, that this same thing would happen. And that they would say, don't follow the Eternal. We will give you your own vine and fig tree and cistern. Alright, let's go to Jeremiah 8 and tie that together with this. Jeremiah 8. And I'll pick it up in verse 1, because we see a reverse of what we saw in Second Kings where Israel dwelt under their vine and fig tree and in Second Kings where the Assyrian promised after destroying Judah's cities that Israel could have peace. Jeremiah 8, At that time says the Eternal, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of his princes and the bones of the priests and so on. Now, let's, let's see. Yeah, I wanted to start there. The wise men are ashamed, they're dismayed and taken. We've seen that in the church. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Eternal, and what wisdom is in them as they depart from those doctrines that we believed in. Now, you and I have departed from some of those doctrines in a way. We have made them more intense. We have kept them stronger, not gone the other direction away from them. In other words, the understanding that we have gained has been how to better keep Passover. It has been how to better count Pentecost. It has been how to better do a lot of things about the holy days and about God's truths, which we've still adhered to. So, we're becoming more in tune with God's Word as we study it and read it and see what it says, instead of less tuned to it. That's the difference. But the church as a whole did not. Verse 3, And death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residents of evil. Laodicean, if you will. Which is contrary to God. And most of them chose spiritual death. Now our people and our nation are going to choose physical death. Verse 4, moreover, you shall say to them, Thus says the eternal, Shall they fall and not arise? Shall he turn away and not return? Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? (laughs) They hold fast deceit, they spoke of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course as a horse rushes into the battle. Now that smacks of Laodiceanism right there, just that very statement. What have I done? Who me? You know. Yea, the stork in the heaven; those who are appointed times, and the turtle and the crane, and they swallow, uh, they, and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people know not the judgment of the eternal. If we knew the judgment of the eternal. Would we, at times, be at war with one another? Would we be negative toward one another? Or would we be living in love and peace and in unity, one with the other? Part of the problem is that we read the Scriptures and we recognize that this is the way it should be, but we excuse ourselves as being the exception to the rule. We know that gossip and backbiting and fighting and war within the church is wrong, and that should not be followed. We can see that. But what I think and what I want to say is okay. Now, why should you or I be the only exception to the rule? And if each of us considers himself an exception to the rule, then nobody keeps the rule. That's the problem. That's why God says he will judge every man according to his own works. Not of his father, not of the son, but each his own words. Each his own works. As I said last week, peace does not erupt automatically. Peace does not occur in the universe or in the world of man by fiat. It doesn't just happen. Warfare is the natural course of Satan and human nature. That's what it is. And that's why Paul could say, you are yet carnal. You're still thinking and reacting carnally. Why would that be? Because each of us thinks he's an exception to the rule, and therefore virtually no one follows the rule. It's actually quite simple. Verse 8, How do you say we are wise and the law of the eternal is with us? Now, we read last week several verses that showed that God's Word is true, and that God's Word, if followed, will lead to peace. And yet, how do we say we are wise and the law of the eternal is with us? Lo, certainly in vain made he it, the pen of the scribes, is in vain. So the Word of God is written out for us, brethren, and it tells us how we ought to think, what we ought to say, and how we ought to go about it as we saw in Philippians 4, verse 8, last week. That verse should be a memory verse for all of us. We should all know it inside and out and review it carefully and frequently about what our attitudes should be. Now, because God's Word will lead to peace, does that mean that it automatically happens? No, not at all. Unless God's words are followed, there will not be peace. See what I mean? Not just the hearers. The word's there. We can hear it. We can read it. But if we don't do something about it, what good is it? Remember those things that are of good report? Anything that is uplifting and good to say and don't have Malice and envy and impatience and negativity. All the way through the Bible it says that. Verse 8 here, in a sense, says the same thing. What good does it do to have the Word of God if you don't follow it? The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the Word of the Eternal, and what wisdom is in them? happened to worldwide. Tkachah's... Denied, rejected the word of God, and so did about half the church. Therefore will I give their wives to others, and their fields to them that shall inherit them. For everyone, from the least even to the greatest, is given to covetousness. From the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. We want peace. We talk about peace but we do not become peacemakers is the problem. (laughs) I just recently heard that back during the Days of Unleavened Bread uh, that I had had a meeting with uh, a group of people and that as a result of that meeting none of those people were going to come back here. About half the church nearly. Didn't happen. Wasn't true. But our enemies were saying that that was true and passing it on to others. Interesting. It's not only interesting that they were twisting it and turning it into a lie and passing it on, trying to destroy this congregation, but a thought came to my mind, how did they even know if there was a meeting, where the meeting was, and who was involved, and what the outcome of the meeting was. Someone, somewhere, is still sleeping with the enemy. Don't you think? How would the enemy even know what I do, where I go, who I meet with, and what the outcome of those meetings are, unless someone, somewhere, is telling them something? wasn't true. I've had meetings, but no one said any of those things that got reported. And no one followed through and did what the report was. So, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Why? Because you and I have not learned to keep our mouths shut, and we babble any negativity or any supposed thing, not only to each other, but to our enemies. I wasn't going to mention that, but I do, in a sense, in passing, because it's such a recent and prime example of peace, peace, while we destroy the peace. Someone, somewhere, needs to truly go to God and repent of some attitude. Someone really, really does, or someone's. Brethren, we're not here to say peace, peace, and then can sit and continue to war. That's not what we're here for. And I hope you take this seriously, because God said at Zion, in this area, in the latter temple, in this place, he is going to bring peace. Now, you and I can be part of that, or if we choose not to be peacemakers, but warmongers, we will not be involved, we will not be included. God will see to it. But that will not be the case. It is beautiful when the brethren dwell together in unity. And the opposite of that has been the problem since Satan and the demons, from Adam and Eve, through the early New Testament church, and here in the end-time church. War broke out in worldwide church of God, and that church disappeared. We are still in a state of warfare in those who have even tried to stay in terms of the various splinter groups of the church of God. And we war and fight between groups, and we war and fight as members within groups, and splitting and scattering continues, and we have ourselves right here suffered the same thing. And it is our fault. My fault and your fault. We need, at some point here pretty soon, to take these scriptures seriously, brethren. We're here to dwell in peace, to love one another, and dwell in unity and harmony. And Philippians 4, verse 8, needs to become our theme song. To report those things which are of good report. If there be any praise, say that. There has got to be something about everyone here that is good, that could be praised. God called us here. He saw something in every last one of us that is here that He thought He might could use, weak and base, though we are. He thought He could transform us. He thought He could fix us. He thought that he could take people from all kinds of backgrounds, from all kinds of cities, from all kinds of races, from all kinds of everything, and bring them together and through his Spirit bring peace. But we obviously have not been close enough to God and had enough of his Spirit that we could Make peace with one another through good report and finding praise and love for one another. Instead, we like to report anything bad we can find, anything negative that is there, true or manufactured, it doesn't matter. And twist things and change things and have our negative-bad attitude. Now, I beseech you, I beseech me, as Paul told the Philippians to do with Eodius and I can't remember the other name. Don't listen to venting. Don't listen to negativity. Say, not here in my house, not here in my presence, wherever you are. And beseech them to change from negativity to praise. To find something of good report or shut up in my presence. That's what Paul told the church to do. Do not listen to that stuff. Whatever it might be and whoever it might be about. It's not our job. To say it or to listen to it. Now, when are we going to find some backbone? How many times have I brought this up? How many times does the Bible bring it up from cover to cover? How many times does it say, if you forgive others their trespasses, I will forgive yours? But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, I will not forgive yours. Now, if your trespasses are not forgiven, brethren, you are going into the lake of fire and you are going to die eternally. And God says that judgment is going to be based upon whether you forgive others their trespasses or not. He will judge you as you judge others. That ought to scare us half to death. It really should. Now, It would be nice and sweet if I could entitle a sermon, Finding the Peace and Righteousness of God, and go on blathering about all the good things that can come. But let's get down to brass tacks, shall we? Time is short. There isn't much left. God is going to bring back together 10% of His church, and there He is going to bring peace. States it, unequivocally. It's a fact. It's going to happen. Are we going to be part of it? I certainly hope so. God has given us every opportunity to be. We're here as forerunners of that. But if we don't get down to brass tacks and say, I'm the guy. I'm the big mount. I'm the one that repeats negativity. I'm the one that vents my bad attitude. I'm the one that needs to get on my knees and repent and keep his big mouth shut unless he can say something good about somebody. My grandmother knew that. I heard that growing up. You can't say something good about somebody, don't say anything. I don't know where my mother got it, but she said the same thing. Probably from her mother. They didn't even need to get it from the Bible. Just human nature told them that if you're going to have peace in a family or in a congregation or in a world or a universe, you can't speak evil and negativity. It won't work. And you will disturb the peace wherever you are when you do. And the whole Bible is replete with that. Over and over and over again. Oh, how slow we are to learn and how carnal we are. I have to control Daryl's mouth. I am not an exception to the rule. You have to control your mouth. You are no exception to the rule. When everyone in his own mind is an exception to the rule, there is no rule, and there is no peace. We have to take it personally. I'm not on a vendetta about the one that I issue that I just mentioned. It's just another one in a long, long line of such things. But it's recent, and it was wrong. Are twisted, completely out of shape at least. And wasn't true at all. So, when's the next one? Who's the next busybody? Who's sleeping with the enemy and continues to sleep with the enemy? And passes things along. They get twisted completely out of context and become lies. Where does it happen next? Does it happen to pull the days over? Or is it Monday? Is it Friday? Think we can go next week before somebody spouts off about his neighbor? How long can I go? How long can you? And if you do, what will you do about it? Will you get on your knees? and truly repent. And the word repent means change. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm sorry, God, I shouldn't have done that, forgive me. Repent means actually do something about it, change it. And that's what Paul was trying to get across to those people that he wrote the letter to in Philippi. Beseech those who are causing trouble, whatever the trouble may have been, that they stop doing it. So we need to make it a committee of one, to find some backbone, and next time anger and bitterness and hate and resentment toward any or everybody starts coming out, you are a committee of one, as Paul said, to beseech that person to change the tone of voice, the tone of speech, and the attitude. Paul wanted Eodius to be part of the kingdom of God and that other person, whoever it was, he named names. Boy, that would set off something if I started naming names of the latest rumor and traced it back to where it came from, wouldn't it? Oh, my, 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 my. Our me first selfie uh, American culture could not take that. But Paul did it. Alexander the coppersmith who did him much damage, remember? He did it several times, in fact. I won't go there. Some of them could have been traced back to me. There have been times I've opened my mouth and said things I shouldn't say, brethren. And I'm sorry. And I've made me a committee of one to shut my big mouth. You need to make yourself a committee of one to shut your big mouth. And now that you know I have that mindset, and I open my big mouth and start spouting that negativity... You need to be a committee of one to beseech me to quit that. And we need to do it with each other. We're here to help and strengthen one another, lift each other up, and help each and every one of us become what we ought to be. That's what we're here to do. And when we go the other direction, we are working against God. Satan is the accuser and the destroyer. And the moment we begin to accuse and be negative, we have become a destroyer, and we are all of our father the devil. Let me see if I can think of a way to put that plainly. No, that's about it, I think. Is our father the devil? Is our father God? God. Who is full of love and mercy and kindness and forgiveness and patience and long-suffering? Or is the devil who accuses and tears and destroys and besmirches and stabs knives and backs? It's one way or the other. It's one way or the other. Whatever comes out of your mouth is toward God or it's toward the devil. It's what Christ said over and over. It's what the whole Bible says over and over. I'm not worried about the last one, or the last 50, or the last 100. I'm worried about the next one. The next accusation that one of us has toward our brother or sister in Christ. That's the one I'm worried about. I'm worried about the next time I open my mouth inadvisedly and without wisdom and stupidity and lack of love and concern. That's the one I'm worried about. We can't undo the past. We can change what we are. And we can learn to live together in love and in unity. Loma Armstrong wished with all her heart could happen in Worldwide Church of God. That's why that became her favorite scripture. It was not the unity that made that her favorite scripture. It was the disunity, the disharmony, and the negativity that destroyed the unity and made her long for that scripture to be fulfilled. And it's what Makes me long for Haggai 2 9 to be fulfilled. In this place will I bring peace. Now, blessed are the peacemakers, Isaiah, I mean Matthew 5. Those who make peace, not war. Those who make harmony, not dissension. Those who make unity, not division. Those are the ones God will bless. Now, which are we? We are an unfortunate combination of the two. Is what we are. And we need to get on one side or the other. That's what we need to do. I'll get to James 3. I guess it's down here as my last scripture for today, but I see I'm not going to get through my last scripture for the day. But can both sweet and bitter water come out of the same fountain? Can we be both? No. You can say some nice things to some people that you like, and you can say bitter, angry, salty things about people you don't like. But the bitter and the negative and the weak and the nasty combines with whatever's sweet, and it all becomes bitter. A fountain can't be both. It is either sweet or bitter. Because bitterness does not overcome sweetness. I mean sweetness does not overcome bitterness. Bitterness overcomes sweetness. And negativity overcomes positivity. That's just the way of human nature, and it is the way of Satan the devil. Now we didn't get to all the vine and fig tree verses. Let's at least finish this one. Uh, I want to get on down just a little more. Verse 12, well, 11, they say, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Let's be honest. Let's be true. Let's face the facts. Doesn't do any good to say it unless you produce it. Were they ashamed when they would committed abomination? Nay, they were not all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall, and their time of their punishment they shall be cast down, says the Eternal. We're ashamed and we hate it when people people speak evil of us or our friends. But when we speak evil, we're not ashamed of it. We're not bashful about it. We claim it's true. We claim it's valid. We claim it's okay. Why do we make ourselves the exception? It is a rule, you know. This book is full of it. That's the rule. Speak good, not evil. Do not do it. It is a sin. When we speak evil of one another, it is a judgment that God reserves to Himself. Now, this has been going on here. It's been going on in every group of the Church of God. It was going on in worldwide before it came apart. It was going on from Adam and Eve till today. But God intends to bring peace to the church, ultimately to the world in the millennium, and to the universe when Satan is bound. Now, are we going God's direction or our direction? Are we going God's direction or Satan's direction? And the truth is, we're trying to walk the fence and do both. And if we will be honest with ourselves, don't blame me, don't blame your neighbor, don't blame your friend, don't blame anybody but self. The only way a problem within a group, whether it be a family, a church family, a nation, a people is when everybody takes personal responsibility and does something about himself or herself. That's the only way problems can be solved. It's when we take an individual responsibility to obey the words of God and speak as God tells us to speak. We need to blush at ourselves. We need to be ashamed of ourselves. Not trying to put shame on someone else. Whatever the circumstance. Verse 13, I will surely consume them, says the Eternal. There shall be no grapes on the vine, and no figs on the fig tree, says he. And the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. It happened to Worldwide Church of God, it's happened to other groups, and it will happen to this group if we do not obey the words of the Eternal. Why do we sit still? Why do we continue on as we are, sitting on our behinds, doing what we have been doing? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the defense cities and let us be silent there. Shut up. I said that earlier about me. For the Eternal, our God, has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Eternal. Our situation as people of God called out from this world, essentially under Herbert Armstrong, our punishment has been given gall to drink, and we have sinned, and that's why we're in the condition we're in. We looked for peace, but no good came, and for a time of health, and behold, trouble. Does any of that ring true? What are we going to do about it? Feel like you've been kicked in the stomach? These scriptures kick us all in the stomach, don't they? I had wanted to get to some more inspiring scriptures today, and I didn't make it. But maybe this is better. Maybe we need to all assess how much culpability we have in disturbing the peace. And go home and get on our knees and talk to our God. And commit to Him to become peacemakers. I'll close with Matthew 5. I've already quoted it. But it just comes to mind again. Where's the one I'm looking for? Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. You want to be called a child of God, and so do I. Let us make peace, brethren, not war. War is on its way out. It has a little run yet to be accomplished, but then it will be over. we have an opportunity to begin to bring peace and to be peacemakers. And I hope to get on to a little more detail in how to make and to achieve peace so that we can enjoy it and appreciate it and be a part of it and be part of it forevermore. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. And you and I have already proved that we cannot live together in peace without a great measure of the Spirit of God because we are yet carnal and we still react carnally and satanically. Therefore, a change needs to occur and we need to learn to love one another instead of produce hate and learn to dwell together in unity and harmony and in peace and in love. Let's make that our goal. Let's make that our purpose. It is God's purpose. And you you cannot go wrong fulfilling God's will. So I'm not here to condemn any one person except me for anything that they may have said in the past. I'm saying, let's fix it. Let's have godly reactions henceforth instead of our carnal reactions. For up till now, we have shown to be yet carnal. Time to change that.